0: We are entering into Holy Week this week from Sunday through Sunday. Every year, Christians across the globe remember the events from the Sunday through Sunday of Jesus' life where he entered into Jerusalem as King of Peace, riding on a, a donkey, and declaring himself as king on that Palm Sunday, which is today. And then there are many, many events through Holy Week leading up to the culmination of that week on Sunday with the resurrection. And we're taking a look at a little mini-series together where we're picking just two episodes. So even though it's Palm Sunday, we are not focusing there today. We're focusing on Tuesday and next Sunday because of the contrast and because of the setup. And so this week is a momentous week to remember the events of Jesus. I mean, you have everything from his entry with a declaration that he is the Messiah. You have then the dis- disappointment beginning to settle into the crowd that was so exuberant on Sunday when the revolution that he begins is beginning not against Rome, but against Israel in their own temple when he accosts the temple, and the leaders and starts turning the tables over and he literally calls the leaders into account because they've turned the house of God into a den of thieves. In a sense, he's calling the leaders thieves for allowing this to take place with the commercialism that's rampant and the thievery that's going on, exploiting the poor in the house of worship. Then on Monday, these leaders come loaded for bear uh, in their thinking. We're going to get to that. Tuesday, it comes out more publicly. And then there's all these events throughout the week. The highlights, that we of course, remember where he is gone to Gethsemane, which we've already listened to a bit. And the agony of the preparation for what he knows is coming. There's the Last Supper and all the teaching that goes on there. There's Pages upon pages upon pages in the Gospels of Jesus' dialogue and Jesus' teaching in this last week. In fact, I want to show you a little uh, visual graphic that I, I worked on in a real low-tech way, where I grabbed a Bible and counted pages. And so in this particular Bible, there's 32 pages in Matthew and 20 pages in Mark and 34 pages in Luke and 25 pages in John. And I literally counted the pages that were related to the last week in the life of Jesus from Sunday to Sunday. And calculated against those pages that that's 33% of all of the Gospels is dedicated to only one week, in the life of Jesus. Now the reason for that is this week eclipses everything else about his life. This was the purpose for which he came and everything else is set up for this week. And so on the screen I put just a thought together that I'll read for you. What happened in this one week eclipses everything else in terms of importance. It isn't until Holy Week is accomplished that the gospel good news is available. The gospel explains who Jesus is, what he has done, why he died and rose from the dead, and what all of this means for us. So this is an incredibly important week for us to get a hold of and know what this is about. This is what all of Christianity gains its meaning from and our faith from and our life transformation from. And So we need to understand what took place during Holy Week. Some people call it Passion Week. It gets confusing to some of the modern people who don't know what the root of the word passion, means, which means suffering. It's the suffering week of Jesus. And so we're looking at two episodes, Conflict Tuesday and Vindication Sunday. And so today sets up Easter for us as we celebrate the vindication and we look at the conflict that takes place on Tuesday. So again, he entered in as king. He begins to overturn the temple tables. And so the revolution begins at the house of God as opposed to what the crowd is expecting the revolution against the powerful Romans who have overtaken their nation. And so the leaders, then having been called thieves, are loaded for bear. Now, their reaction to Jesus' statement that you've made the house of God into a den of thieves, Mark summarized with chapter 11, verse 18 the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him so this sets up the week they're now looking for a way to kill him they've made jesus has made them look very very bad in front of all of the crowds that are gathered there at the temple And so they come at Jesus on Tuesday, loaded for bear, they come at Jesus with trick questions and they're questioning his authority to do what he did and say what he said. And they figure they're questioning his authority in such a way that no matter how he answers, they can discredit him. Jesus does a brilliant thing and he counters their question with a counter question that they refuse to answer. The counter question that he uses is, how about John the Baptist? Where did he get his authority? And now they're caught on the hook that they were trying to catch Jesus on because they thought John the Baptist was not a prophet of God. They hated John the Baptist who said all kinds of things against them and they were relieved when John the Baptist was beheaded. And if they answer, the crowds will turn on them. And so they say, we don't know. But the crowds know, they know. And so they're silent. So we enter into this Tuesday where Jesus is not silent. And he begins to then tell a story about the question, by whose authority does John have authority? And he begins a story to actually amplify that tenfold. By whose authority do you, Jesus, do you say and do such things. So we're in Mark chapter 12 for the rest of our morning together. And we'll begin at verse one. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Now already at this point, We aren't clued in like the religious leaders are clued in, but they're riveted and immediately clued in because they're going, oh no, here we go. Because Jesus is almost verbatim quoting from Isaiah 5 where God himself claims Israel is his vineyard. In Isaiah 5, he establishes a garden. Israel is his vineyard. He's the tender and keeper of his vineyard. He's built walls to protect his vineyard. He's gonna bless the vineyard. The fruit of the vineyard is his and to his glory. And here Jesus sets up this story talking about Israel and now he's got this rented out to tenant farmers to take care of the vineyard. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him. Oh, they sent a servant, seized him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Already, immediately on the heels of what they refused to answer about John the Baptist, they're feeling on the hook here. It gets worse. Then he sent another servant to them, They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed, and now they're rehearsing their own history as the nation of Israel. The vineyard has gone rogue. All the tenant leaders of the vineyard have established a pattern where it's all about them, and they refuse to do what God has called them to do in covenant with him. And he sends prophet after prophet through their history. And they know their history. And their prophets were abused. Their prophets were not listened to. The nation did not repent. Their prophets were killed. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in story form. And he's not just addressing these leaders of Israel. There's a whole crowd listening in as Jesus goes face to face with the leaders of Israel, exposing them. In front of all. And then he introduces not just servants, but a son. Mark 12, verse 6. He had one left to send. This is an only son. He had one left to send a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. So, just to be clear, Israel is the vineyard, which makes us then ask, then who are the thieves? Just to be clear, I think the crowd knows exactly what he's saying. (laughs) And who are the servants? The prophets. And I think the leaders know, and they're they're just getting redder and redder in the face as they're listening to Jesus. And then Jesus has the audacity to say, and then God sent his one and only son. They see it as God is the vineyard owner. And Jesus is claiming to be that guy. Of course, they know from the past the audacity of Jesus to be praying with such intimate terms like calling Almighty God, whom they're even afraid to use the name God when they address him. He he calls him Father over and over again. And they can't believe he prays with such intimacy. And now Jesus is here saying, and this Father, the owner of the vineyard... Who has all right and authority over the fruit of the vineyard, who hasn't been receiving rent like he should be receiving from the tenants, sent servant after servant after servant, and they kill them. And we just go, this is a weird story. Why would a father, then knowing that all these servants have been killed by these tenants, send his own son? Is he stupid? Is he foolish? yet Jesus knows exactly what he's saying. He knows exactly what he's teaching because this is not a story just about history. This is a story about him. And the people who are listening, they kind of think it's about him. This is amazing conflict on Tuesday. And Jesus is brilliant. Who's on trial this day? Yeah, the authorities think they're putting Jesus on trial. They're going to put him on the hook. The crowd is going to just see him for what he is, a charlatan who claims all these things that are blasphemous. And now suddenly this story in front of all the crowds puts all of the leaders backpedaling in their own history because they are leaders doing like their history has shown to be done and they've done it recently with John the Baptist and they themselves know they are plotting his death because they had meanings about it and now Jesus is now saying a story that they, it becomes so obvious that Jesus knows that they're plotting his death. Wow. And he says this in front of everybody. Brilliant. Brilliant. Point number one, the sent son was amazing grace. It's not foolishness, although every unbeliever believes the gospel is foolishness. What? A son is sent to die for our sins? I don't get it. It seems foolish. Why would God have his own son killed? It seems foolish. And yet the foolishness that a skeptic sees as foolishness, we accept as the power of God to save us, it's the incredible wisdom of God through flesh taking our place. And Jesus just tells this story through the lens of history because this lens of history is his story. Brilliant, brilliant. An amazing grace. They plotted to kill him secretly. Jesus exposed their plot openly, right, to them with the crowds listening. Jesus lets everyone know that he knows, and he gives them their last chance to repent. This is amazing grace. It's not just the amazing grace of the Father who sends a son to these vineyard thieves. It's not just a story. As he's telling the story, it's happening that week in real time. And Jesus knows it's just a couple of days in coming. We read verse 7. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Which It begs us to ask these questions. Are these guys stupid? Why would, first of all, the father vineyard owner send the son? We ask that. Then why would the people kill the son that he sent? Aren't they afraid of retribution? What were they thinking? Why this gamble? Now you understand that legally, if there is no landowner, and they're already working the land They come out on top as to the possibility of taking over ownership of the land because there's no heir. So if the only heir is sent, does it mean the father is dead? And if the father is not dead, does it mean that he's incapacitated and will soon die? If we kill the son aha, and the father is dead, that means there's no heir. And so even in the story, there's just this little sense in which logically you see their lies at work. Maybe, just maybe, if we get rid of the one that has the authority over this vineyard, we can take over the authority and ownership of this vineyard. This God is dead lie is not unique to the leaders of Israel. This God is dead lie is the lie of every sinner. We couch it differently so that we might believe it. We ask, how could anybody ever know? No one will ever know if I do this. And if I Do this thing, nothing bad will happen because nothing bad happened before. I can do it again. Those are all lies, hoping that God the Father is dead. That the authority He has and the justice that He brings is not true, is not real, that we can get away with sin. We all want to take authority over our own lives and do what we want to do, and it's up to us. Not up to him. And this story puts every sinner on trial. Not just the thieves as the religious leaders, but those of us who want to be independent, autonomous leaders of our own lives. Who are you to tell me what I can do or say? Who are you, God? This is my body. This is my life. I can do what I want because I have authority over me. Who could ever know? Which is a lie. God always knows. And if God is not dead and God is holy, according to not just the story, but our logic about God who is holy, he will not let it Go where we are God. I'm lost. I get on this preacher mode and I don't remember what I preached. Did we already get over point two? Point two is this. Point one was... This is amazing grace. Point two is, and yet, the sent son was also God's ultimatum. The sent son was also God's ultimatum. And we want to do our own thing. Mark 12, 8 through 9. So they took him, this is the son and killed him, this is still the story Jesus is telling, and threw him out of the vineyard. Verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. In fact, in the other Gospels, Jesus just tosses the question out to the audience, and the audience answers, this is what's going to happen. All the authority and power don't belong to the tenants. All the authority and power belong to the owner. And the owner is going to come with authority and power, and justice will be done. We all know that to be true. If there really is authority there, if God is alive and He is God, this ultimatum makes sense. And the way that Jesus tells a story, giving them the last chance with the grace that he offers in story form, the story actually answers how they're going to respond. They don't accept their last chance to repent. They're going to stumble over the ultimatum. Point number three, rejecting the Son brings judgment. Rejecting the Son brings judgment. And now for the surprising ending the most interesting part of this whole story, Jesus doesn't let it go with the story being done with the landowner coming and judging all of those wicked thieves who have now killed his son. He doesn't end there. He brings a surprise prophecy and a surprise riddle that Holy Week alone can answer and he lays it out Ahead of time. I'm absolutely riveted by the brilliance of Jesus. Some of us don't even realize he is genius. He's brilliant. There's not a twist or a stumble that any lawyer could throw at him. Here's how he brings a surprise ending. After he tells that story, he says, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Just so that you know, if you want to write this down, he is quoting verbatim Psalm 118, 22 through 23. That's his twist to the end of the story. He's comparing a rejected son who's killed with this Psalm 118, which I think Jesus has been thinking about a lot because they've already been quoting pieces of it at the triumphal entry, with the rejected son is equated with the rejected stone. And I think that we completely miss his brilliance because we can't see it in the English translation and we can't see it even in the Greek translation. But these leaders, they see it, they know it, they know about it because of their writings and literature they've studied. And I need to bring this out to our attention. So let me keep reading. Jesus says, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders look for, now this is his story, This is a Mark commentary after the end of his quote. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken a parable against them. Now, just a reminder, every single time Jesus taught parables before, only those that believed got it. It was always difficult to understand in such a way that if you didn't believe the right cues, you missed the point of the parable. And this is the reverse case All of those who are plotting his death get it. He's judging us. Those who don't think the Messiah can die miss it. They don't understand what's happening here. What does this mean? I don't get it, which is interesting to me. Jesus is brilliant. They're plotting to kill him. They're looking for a way because Jesus has spoken against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now, I want to explain this piece that we tend to miss because we don't see it in Hebrew. We don't know our Hebrew, and we only see it in English. And even though I studied Greek, because that's what the New Testament is written in, I couldn't see it in the Greek either. So it wasn't until this, this last go-around there's like, oh my, I have never seen this before. On the screen, the Hebrew word for son is a ben. Ben means son. The Hebrew word for stone is eben. Jesus is doing a word play. It's a word play that these religious leaders are very familiar with because their commentary literature from the period of time when their whole nation was moving away from speaking Hebrew to speaking Aramaic, they began to make commentary on the scriptures in Hebrew with Aramaic oral commentary to explain the Hebrew in the oral commentaries they eventually became literary commentaries so there's literature that we read the jewish interpretation of psalm 118 has this wordplay and here's how the jews interpreted it the rejected son became the reject was the rejected stone that eventually became the capstone okay and so Here's how they interpret it. The rejected son must have been King David when he was young, when Samuel came in 1 Samuel 16 to anoint King David as king. As God directed, the prophet was going to anoint King David, but his father only brought all his brothers who were all older, more kingly, and more stature, and possible king material. And Samuel said, no, not this one, not this one, not this one. And by man's choice, this rejected son was David. God intervened through Samuel and said, no, you must have another son. And the youngest who would have been overlooked was David, who became the glorious king, the gold standard of all kings of all of Israel's history that all kings are measured against. He became the cornerstone of their covenant and their temple. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This Psalm 118 is not in retrospect about our history. Psalm 118 is the prophecy not about David. It's the prophecy about the son of David who is the rejected son who will be killed and this rejected son will become the cornerstone. So now this prophecy ends up being a riddle. And the riddle is this. How can a killed, rejected son be vindicated to become the capstone of the whole thing? And the answer is, Jesus knows he's going to be killed, but he's going to be resurrected. The only way a rejected son can become the capstone, cornerstone of the new kingdom, the new covenant, the new temple is for the rejected son to be vindicated. And Jesus knows precisely how he's going to be vindicated. So in a sentence, the rejected son will become the cornerstone of God's good covenant, God's new covenant, I mean, and his new temple. So, point number four. Accepting the sent son brings alignment. So there's an ultimatum. Will you accept or will you reject? With the rejection, there's judgment to face. With acceptance, you're brought into alignment with the cornerstone. And God is in the business of making a completely new temple in fact, Jesus said, this temple will be judged to the Israelite people. Sure enough, it was destroyed. All stones removed from one another. Destroyed in AD 70. And, but the new temple had already been exploded into birth. After the resurrection, because our sins were forgiven, the followers of Jesus received the Spirit of God so that the house of God is the body of God incarnate, now not in the flesh of Jesus, but in our bodies, gathered together as the body of Christ, the church. Wow! Jesus brought it all together before it happened so that we would know. But nobody was expecting the death of the Messiah except those who were plotting it. The only ones who prepared for the death of the Messiah were those who were plotting it. So the only ones who heard he was going to rise from the dead with all the many times he predicted it were those who knew that they planned on killing him. So they were the only ones that were prepared enough to try to keep it from happening. Oh, good luck. Put a seal on the tomb? Oh, yeah, like that's gonna keep him out. Put a big stone over him. Guard him with soldiers. Oh, like, good luck. Who has authority here? Jesus has authority here. His story is a story about his authority. When he rises from the dead, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he laid down all of that preparation. So we would get it once we go, Oh, he did have to die. Oh, that's what he meant. (laughs) I love it. Here's what I suggest. If you're a skeptic that says, wait a minute, raised from the dead? (laughs) Let me just ask you this question. Most skeptics... Here's how they answer the question, who is Jesus? Jesus couldn't have really said all these things, predicting his own death and resurrection. He really didn't say these audacious things, claiming to be the Son of God. Somebody else later in history put this in his mouth, and they wrote it out. I ask you, if that's the direction of your answer to your skepticism, how is it possible that the leaders of Israel feel the need religiously to kill the man if he never made such claims? If he never claimed to be the authority, one with the God, if he never claimed to be the son, if he never claimed all these audacious claims, why was he crucified? Here's one thing the historians do not dispute. He was crucified. Why was he crucified if he didn't make these claims? Not only did he make these claims, he's crucified for these claims and then Immediately, I mean within a matter of months, thousands upon thousands are absolutely convinced by all of the evidence he has risen from the dead. He is who he claimed to be. He has been vindicated. He's right. And if he's right, I dare not be my own authority. I must align my life to him because he is the cornerstone. My suggestion for all of us is that we align our lives to Jesus and accept him as Lord and Savior and bow our whole life with regularity in worship because Jesus also claims to come back as judge. Would you worship with me? Father God, we thank you so much for the power proclamation of Jesus his revelation in advance of who he is what he has done and how you vindicated this to be true Lord Jesus we worship you we honor you we align ourselves to you we bow to you you are the one and only son fully human fully God God came to save us, did a miracle on the cross for us, making it possible for our sins to be paid for by you. Then making it possible upon our cleansing by your shed blood to fill our lives with your spirit that the glory of your spirit would enter into our flesh as temples together gather the temple of God, the body of Christ, hands and feet of God himself with the spirit of God moving us, speaking through us, walking with us, proclaiming the good news through us. We worship you. We honor you. We want our lives to make sense because of you and offer you ourselves to your glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ today and have questions, we would urge you to pursue these questions, read more, and look to Jesus and pray to him. We have a prayer team to the left of the stage to answer any questions well, to pray with you about anything that you need prayer for. God bless you. See you next week for the vindication. A lively answer to a difficult problem.